Yes, we can hear you fine. Okay. Okay, so uh, welcome back to all of us. Good to be back in business. I uh, hope everyone had a good uh, summer. <coughs> and we, we resume our investigations into Chumash Devarim <coughs> with Parshas Kiseitse. Just before we uh, begin the Shir itself, Self, I wanted to mention a couple of things. Firstly, uh, Baruch Hashem, I've recently published uh, a new sefer on uh, Sukkot. Uh, this is what it looks like, Sukkot, a symphony of joy, and it covers all the uh, mitzvahs and customs and uh, themes of the Chag and shows how they go together and gives Mitz uh, Hashem a higher insight and a deeper connection. <coughs> and uh, alongside that, the Tshuva Sefer, which uh, some of you are familiar with, the White Tshuva Sefer for Shani Nim Kippur, has also recently been reprinted, so those two should be available in the all good uh, Svarim stores here in Israel, and they're also currently on their way to, <coughs> to the United States and to the United Kingdom. So um, I hope you enjoy them, and without further ado, <coughs> let's have a look at so I'd like to start uh, our discussion of the Parsha actually at the end. Uh, in the spirit of a Mukdamuma we'll begin at the end. Because the final section of Parsha's Kiseitse, and Kiseitse is packed with mitzvahs, but the final section is that of Zohar, the mitzvah of remembering Amalek. Now, those few psukim, the three psukim, really, of remembering Amalek, I believe, are more famous in Shabbos Zohar than they are in Shabbos Kiseitse. In Shabbos Kiseitse, they're the end of the Parsha. But in Parsha Zohar, <coughs> they are without a doubt the focus to remember <coughs> the episode with Amalek, the war, etc. And... Nonetheless, there is specific relevance to Zohar this year, and I'll explain. <coughs> we read Parsha Zohar once a year in fulfillment of the mitzvah of remembering what happened with Amalek. How does it come to be once a year? If that indeed is the actual essential mitzvah is once a year. So many Mepharshim, Chassam Sofer, and others explain that the mitzvah of remembering Amalek is intimately bound up with the prohibition against forgetting. Zohar lo tishkach. How long does it take a person generally to forget something? This is, this is discussed by the Gemara in a certain context. The Gemara states <coughs> that a person generally will forget something over the course of a year. Twelve months. Of course, needless to say, Zrizim Makdimim, some people like to get in there early, but the standard is held at twelve months. The source is very specific. <coughs> it's actually discussing Lo'aleinu, uh, a case of bereavement, right? The mace, the deceased, is forgotten. And again, forgotten doesn't mean you can't remember. People can remember things for, for many years. But, it, but it's an emotional dwelling in the heart. That occurs for 12 months, 
and then dissipates to a certain degree. And as we know, it needs to. A person could not function otherwise. And the Gemara associates this, interestingly, with the laws of Hashava Saveda, of returning lost property, which we will get to in just a few moments in our Parsha. It's also reiterated in Parsha's Kiseitse. The Pasuk says in Tehillim, <coughs> David HaMelech says, Nishkachti kemes milev. I was forgotten like the, de- like the deceased from the heart. Hayisi kichli oved. I was like a lost object from which the Gemara deduces that a person is likely to have forgotten about their lost object after a year. Well, taking therefore the 12 months, which is actually said (coughs) as the standard, that is why once every 12 months in fulfillment of not forgetting, not allowing 12 months to go by before uh, allowing one to forget, that's why we read or or sure to read Pasha Zohar once every 12 months. Now, if that's the case, so that will lead to a very interesting shaila. Namely, what about Shana Uberes? Shana Uberes, what we call a leap year, which for us means that there's two Adars. And Zohar is in the second Adar. All of the Purim-related things are in Adar base. That means that from the Purim before a leap year to the Purim of a leap year, or more correctly, from the Zohar of before leap year to the Zohar within leap year, there will be more than 12 months. <coughs> and the expression of the Gemara is that the, the time for forgetting is Yud Beis Chodesh, is 12 months. So it sounds like there's a problem. We're adrift for that month, and we're, we, we've already entered the zone of forgetting. Now, a suggestion was made. Because don't forget, aside from the Parsha of Amalek being Parsha Zohar, it's also inbuilt into the Torah. It's, it's the end of Parsha's Kiseitse. Therefore, could it be that what one should do in order not to go more than 12 months is to actually tide oneself over by taking advantage of hearing Zohar in in Parshas Kiseitse, and that, of course, we are in such a year because next year is a leap year, and that way there will have been less than uh, 12 months because one's used this uh, station, so to speak, of Kiseitse. A very interesting, it's it's an ingenious mind that kind of uh, thought of this idea, and the question was put to the Chassam Sofer as to whether one needs to do that. And the answer of the Chassam Sofer is even more surprising. And that is, says Chassam Sofer, you do not need to do that. Generally speaking, a person will forget over the course of 12 months. But if it's a leap year, and it's an extra month, then in that year, he will forget over the course of 13 months. The added month of the year is an added month of remembrance. (coughs) Now that takes some understanding after all, just because there's an added month, it doesn't, uh, does that enhance or improve our memories? Uh, where did that come from? But the Chassam Sofer explains that, the, that when we talk about things that you remember over the course of 12 months, what we mean really is you remember it as part of the yearly cycle. From year to year until you reach the same point again, You'll, you'll carry something. And if that's true, then if the yearly cycle expands and has an extra month, <coughs> so then likewise your consciousness will also 
have that extra month in it until you get to the same point um, that following year. So that's quite a chiddush, but la halacha, says Hassan Sofer, I appreciate the sentiment, but it is not necessary. You can just, uh, when it comes to mafti of Parshas Kiseitse, in a year before a leap year, act casual. There is no need to uh, make a point of fulfilling the mitzvah of Zachar. And that is the ruling of the Chassam Sofer. But that is not the end of the matter. And the reason being that it is reported, and we have uh, records of the Minhagim of the Chassam Sofer, that as much as Chassam Sofer wrote and held, and he did help, the Halach Lamaisa, <coughs> one does not need to, to do this Hidur, of having in mind for Zohar in such a year, but the Chassam Sofer himself did. He himself went the extra mile, he was Bahadir and went beyond the letter of the law uh, in order to do this. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that everyone needs to do this. Presumably, if, one, if the average person has before them the ruling of the Chassam Sofer and the personal practice of the Chassam Sofer, the ruling of the Chassam Sofer is what what one will, will go by. I mean, that's, that, that's why he, he gave that ruling. <laughs> Nonetheless, there are some people who were always very interested in picking up these practices, and it's not a bad thing. <clears throat> and uh, there may be, and especially Zohar, we're far and away from Parsha Zohar itself, but Zohar has picked up many, many uh, Hidurim and Chumras, one could say, in terms of how it's read and in terms of how super silent everyone is and attentive, and well, they should be, not only to Zohar, but to, to all of the language. But uh, either way, so as in, in perhaps in the spirit of all of the Hidurim that have congregated around Zohar, so, so Yalev Yavo, let this one come in also, and uh, those who are alert uh, and Zohar minded <coughs> to have in mind for Pasha Zohar in Maftir of this week. There is just one thing, and this is pointed out by Ritzvi Pesach Frank in his Sefer Mikro'i Kodesh, and that is. If you envisage someone who is now uh, Zohar Savi, and he knows that the 13 months and is, it's an added measure to have in mind the mitzvah of Zohar, it won't help him. If he hasn't mentioned this to the Balkari. Because the Balkari is the one who's motzi everyone in the mitzvah of Zohar. If someone is motzi you and they have no notion that they're being motzi you in anything, there's no way that you can fulfill the mitzvah. So this is very interesting because aside from anything else, it highlights the difference between the Torah reading of Zohar once a year and the Torah reading of the Parsha every week. In both cases, the Chazan reads and the congregation listens, but the dynamic is not the same. The idea of being motzi someone only exists if it's something that they themselves should say and you're saying it for them instead of them. All they're doing is hearing. You need to be motzi them. For example, Kiddush. Everyone needs to say Kiddush. So if one person makes Kiddush for everyone, he is motzi them in Kiddush. 100%. And so too with Zohar. Everyone needs to say Zohar themselves. So the Balkari is motzi them. But Torah-laning throughout the course of the year doesn't work that way. Torah-laning, <coughs> as much as the, the Gashmias is the same, physically he's reading and they're listening, but they don't need to read from the Torah. 
They just need to hear. And they can hear it themselves. And that's exactly what they're doing. So the Balkari isn't motzi anyone on a weekly basis. He's providing them with the parsha for them to hear. But because their mitzvah is to hear and not to read, they can hear it themselves. This matter came out in a rather, it's only humorous because it happened in Shul, that um, <coughs> the Balkari got into a machlokus with one of the Balabatim. And he was in such a, a rage, he said, I'm telling you now, from this point onwards, I'm going to specifically have in mind not to be to you when I lay. I mean, you need to be a shtikala tam l'chacham to say something like that. But of course, he was more amaaretz than, than anything else. And the question came to Rav Soloveitchik. This person was very distraught and says, the Balkari is not going to be motzi me. And Rav Soloveitchik said, the Balkari is never motzi you. He reads and you listen. He can't stop you listening. And therefore, <coughs> uh, the good news, if there is a good news, the silver lining or laning uh, here is that uh, th- there's nothing you can do to stop you being motzi. But that's with generally uh, from week to week. But Zohar, because everyone does need to read, the Balkari is motzi. And, th- and therefore, if you ever want to have one of these extracurricular Zohars, the Balkari needs to be in the know, because otherwise... He, he can't be motzi. So these are some very interesting uh, things to ponder, uh, specifically when we're quote-unquote off-location of Parshas Zohar, but rather on-location of Parshas Kiseitzi. With this in mind, let us open the Parsha, and one of the sections in the beginning of Kiseitzi, which of course attracts uh, much attention, is Ben Sora Umora, the, 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 however he would be uh, translated, the wayward and rebellious uh, son, and that is in Perik Kaf Aleph, Pasuk Yudches. <coughs> Perik Kaf Aleph, Pasuk Yudches. And let's read the Pasuk in order to uh, initiate ourselves into this uh, Parshaki Yele'ish. If there should be for, for a person, Bain Sorer Umare. And I would, I would mention, even just parenthetically, but uh, quite important, it's an ongoing uh, matter. It's important that the, the pronunciation of the word of Bain Sorer Umare and not Ben Sorer Umare. Many people run them together or, or feel that they're the same, but they're not the same. Because Bain means a son. Bain with its area. Ben means the son of. Like if you'd say uh, Ben this or about Ben Maves or Ben Torah or it's always the son of. And therefore, if you would read Ben Sorer Umare, it would be the son of a, of, a, of a wayward and rebellious person. But that's not so. Ben is the son. And these things are adjectives of him. He is rebellious and he is Sorer Umare. Sometimes it can make a really big difference. For example, when uh, Rachel, I'll, I'll mention a drastic case just to bring out the point. When Rachel has uh, her first son, Yosef, so she calls him Yosef and she said, Yosef Hashem li ben acher. May Hashem grant me another son. If you were to translate, to, to pronounce those words, renunciate those words, Yosef Hashem li ben acher, it sounds like she is asking that Hashem should give her a son from someone else. Not Yaakov. And that, I think, highlights the difference. Again, it's one dot, but between a segel and a tzere, it's a very different word. So, bein sorer umaret. So, you have 
this, this wayward, rebellious child. He doesn't listen, not to his father, not to his mother. So they chastise him. They rebuke him. And he doesn't listen. He, he, pays, he pays no attention. And the way that I would like to approach this section uh, this evening is through the medium of the Sifrei. The Sifrei, the Medrash Halacha, has some, uh, a couple of brief comments on the words Sorer Umare, as follows. Sorer, this, this uh, son, he is uh, wayward, al divrei Torah, meaning he's departed from divrei Torah. Umare, and he's rebellious, Eilu Hanavim. So the Sifrei, again, a somewhat enigmatic comment. It has associated the two terms of Sorer and Moreh to the words of Torah and the words of Nevi'im. What does this mean? The Nitziv <coughs> explains as follows. The Pasuk itself tells us, and again we'll see another comment of the Sifrei and the two will support each other. The, the Pasuk goes on to say he doesn't listen. Not his father's voice, not his, his mother's voice. And the Sifrei once again comments and says, that's so rare umareh. The two terms. So rare he departs from his father's voice and Moreh and is rebellious with regards to his mother's voice. So we have two dualities now. On the words Sereu Moreh, the Sifrei has associated with two other sets of things. Number one, with Torah and Nevi'im, and number two, with the father and the mother. But how does this further our understanding, and, and what does it even mean? So the Sif explains as follows. There is a Pasuk in Mishle, it's well known, it's written in the beginning of the Siddur, Shema Beni Musaravicha, Valtitosh Teresimech. So it adjures, <coughs> enjoins the, uh, the uh, person to listen to the instruction of the father and not to abandon the Torah of the mother. And the question is, what are these two things? What is the instruction of the father? What is the Torah of the mother? Presumably, it's, is it not the same thing? How, how are they divided into two? But actually, the Vilna Gaon explains that the concept of Torah Avicha, or Musar Avicha, the instruction of the father, and the Torah of the mother, they really are two different areas that a person needs in order to be a good Jew. And you could call them halacha and derech eretz. This is generally the case that it's divided between the two. Not always, and not absolutely, but often and generally. That it's the father, that his instruction is more on the, the learning side. He's the one that will be upset if the child doesn't know his toasters properly. Whereas the mother will be upset if the child doesn't eat his food properly and doesn't uh, behave properly and speak to people properly. Ultimately, both parents care about both, but each one will emphasize something else. And what's very interesting is, says the Gon, 
that having, with the first Pasuk in Mishle, having spoken about these two areas of instruction, instruction of the father, instruction of the mother, Musar Avicha, Torah Simecha, it goes on to say, Ki for they are an adornment of grace for your head, Va'anokim Lagagarosecha, and pearls around your neck. This is all in the first parakel of Mishle, I think it's Pasuk Ches and Pasuk Tes. What does this mean? What is this marshal of the crown and of the pearls? Says the Vilna Gon, this is a respective depiction of the teaching of the father and the teaching of the mother. The teaching of the father is in the head. And that's why it's called Livyaschein Lirashecha. It's a crown of grace around your head. But the teaching of the mother, it's for the heart. It's good middos. It's to, be, it's to be a mensch, to do the right thing. And where did the string of, string of pearls around the neck, where did they rest? They rest on the heart. So this is all from the parish of the Vilna Gaon. It's an amazing alignment of these two psukim. And what does this mean for us? This Ben Sober Umoris, there's something about what he's done, which uh, it's beyond, beyond the pale even though a child can misbehave and a person can even do something wrong, but there's something that's especially alarming about what he's done. And that is that the way that the Gemara describes it, Rashi quotes it, is that it's ex- not only is it wrong, not, not only quote-unquote is it wrong, that he's doing something that's forbidden. There's something very devious and especially non-ethical because he's stealing from his parents in order to pay for these uh, addictive habits. And everything about that situation is wrong on every level. In other words, again, we use the term advisedly. It's not just quote-unquote stealing, but it's an absolute corruption of, of a whole family setup. For, and for, from whom is he stealing and for what? And that's really the, the depth, says the Nitziv, of why he's described as not listening to his father or to his mother. I mean, he's missed both messages. His father teaches him what's, what's right and wrong halachically, and he doesn't seem to care about that. His mother teaches what's right and wrong ethically, and he doesn't seem to care about that either, and he'll steal from both of them. And that's why Sorer Umoreh, that second comment of the Sifrei, links it up with the father and the mother. He's departed and rebelled from both of their inputs, from both of what they should represent. And says the Nasiv, this is the meaning of the first comment of the Sifrei, which, which associated the two terms, Sorer Umoreh, with Torah and Nevi'im. Because this is also the difference between Torah and Nevi'im. Torah, as much as Nevi'im is an expansion, of course, of, of Torah, as we've discussed many times, but, but significantly, Torah is the, the do's and don'ts, and the Nevi'im is all the exhortations. And it's all about behaving in a, in a Musardika way. And therefore, the, the, the division between the role or the message of the father and the mother is parallel to the message of the Torah and Nevi'im. And that's really the Sifrei's way of describing and depicting what it is that, um, that is so alarming about the Ben Sarah Umura. Again, what do we do with him and whether it actually really happened or, or we're just meant to, to, to be uh, alert? Uh, that is a separate question. But the, this is uh, as an important part of the message of Ben Sarah Umura. 
I'll just uh, conclude the Ben Sura Umura discussion just with the Hasidic Vort, and it is Hasidic Vort. It is absolutely not Pshat, but nonetheless, uh, a lot to think about. Because, and I don't remember offhand uh, uh, which Rebbe said it, but um, again, if we read the Pasuk, there seems to be a repetition. How so? Because Pasuk Yudches says, Ki ish ben Okay, he's this Ben Sura Umura. He doesn't listen. He doesn't pay attention. Not to his father, not to his mother. For Yisru or so, they chastise him. He doesn't listen to them. Says the Rebbe, you just told me he doesn't listen to them. Literally three words ago, you said he doesn't listen to his father, doesn't listen to his mother. And they chastise him. And guess what? He doesn't listen to them. Because he hasn't been listening for a while. So, so what is the repetition? He doesn't listen. He doesn't listen. And Aldera Chachat, there's of course uh, uh, direct ways to, to uh, address this issue, but the Rebbe said something very interesting, and that is that in many cases, when they chastise him, he doesn't listen, he doesn't pay any attention to them, as the, as the end of the Pasuk says. But why not? Because of what it says in the beginning. He never hears his parents talk about this in any other context. It's never part of the conversation. It's never part of their own discussions. So he's never heard of these ideas before. They're, 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 they're not part of the, the discourse at home. And the first he hears of it, or the only time he hears of it, is when they chastise him for not doing it. But from a certain point of view, says the Rebbe, what do you want from a child like that? <laughs> The only time he ever hears about davening is when his parents ask him why, why he doesn't daven. They never talk about themselves davening, and he never sees it, and so on and so forth. And all the things, and the, 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 the musr that he gives, he's hardly likely to heed the musr if he never hears this as a topic of conversation in any other capacity. Uh, if it's not part of their dictionary, it's not going to become part of his diary. That's what the Rebbe is saying. So having... Discussed a little bit the opening or the, the, the very beginning of the parsha. Let's move on uh, to the mitzvah of Hashava Saveda. And again, there's much to say about Hashava Saveda, giving back lost property, which has been mentioned already in the Torah in Parshas Mishpatim. But we have another uh, two or three psukim, three psukim in fact, <coughs> for Hashava Saveda. And that is the first three psukim, Beperik Kaf Beis. And As we know, <coughs> the first passage says um, you shouldn't ignore something, you should take it in, you should, sorry, you should, you should give it back. But what if you don't know who to give it back to? Passage What if your brother, meaning the one who's lost it, he's, not, he's nowhere near you, and you don't know who he is. So then what do you do? There are further obligations. You have to be prepared to take it in. And maybe even to a certain degree to take care of it. The salachas, what are the parameters, what are the, the degrees and extents? And it will be with you until he comes uh, and demands it. And then give it to him. So, we have the general mitzvah
We have the uh, general mitzvah of, of, of Hashavah Saveda, of giving back the, uh, the lost item, and then this further obligation to take it in and look after it until he comes looking for it. Halachically, actually, I mean, this is part of the halachas of Hashavah Saveda, not only do you need to be prepared to take it in, but you, uh, to a degree, actively need to let people know that you found it. In those, what's called hachroza. You need to announce it, whatever constitutes announcing. There used to be designated places where people would announce things. Where do you think you may have frequented? That's the whole discussion of how you announce. But the halacha is you do need to let, let the word out that you found something. Obviously, you can't describe it completely because the one who wishes to claim it will need to actually describe it, but you need to somehow let them know that you found, let them know something about the object. That's the halacha. You need to let people know. Seemingly, the Pasuk doesn't talk about that. But actually, says Meshachachma, it, it does. The Pasuk does. Um, Meshachachma, as we know, is a specialty. We've, we've been looking at the same sukkim as he has for a number of years now, but we haven't really been seeing the same things. I mean, that's really a summary of Meshachachma. Uh, and it was his yurtzite today. Uh, in fact, his 97th yurtzite of Rudmir Simcha of Akon uh, of Davinsk. And Meshachachma says like this, <coughs> look again at the Pasuk. What does it say? <coughs> the first Pasuk says, give it back. The, but then Pasuk says, But what if he's not close to you? And what if you don't know who it is? So then you've got to be prepared to take it in with all that's involved. Says Meshachachma, the Pasuk has enumerated two conditions that would result in you having to take care of it until the person comes to get it. They are, number one, lo karov, he's not close to you, he's not nearby. And number two, the lo yidato, you don't know who he is. Now when you think about it, says Meshachachwa, the first is entirely redundant. Because it doesn't make a difference where he is. If you don't know who he is, how can you give it back to him until he comes to claim it? So all the Pasuk needed to say <coughs> is, but if you don't, and, and by the way, and sometimes it's very instructive to do this, if we ourselves would paraphrase the Pasuk, we would likely miss out that first phrase in Pasuk Beis. And that's, that's a, a symptom of the fact that, that we're not quite sure what to do with it. We would say, if you find a lost object, give it back. But if you don't know whose it is, so then take it in, etc. We would actually have skipped over the first clause in the Pasuk, which says, if he's not close to you, and secondly, if you don't know who he is. But what is the meaning of this first clause? Says Meshachachma, you see from this reading of the Pasuk, from paying attention to all of its parts, that there is a mitzvah to announce it. And because there's a mitzvah to announce it, if he is close to you, you're not going to end up bringing it home and taking care of it, because once you've announced it and he's there, he'll collect it straight away. And therefore, in light of the fact that there is a mitzvah, as inferred now from a pasuk, the only time that you will end up taking care of it for any significant period of time is number one, is not only that you don't know who he is, but number two, he's not nearby. So that even when you announce it, he won't hear it immediately. That's then the recipe for, uh, for you taking it in. So it's really a classic, a classic brief comment of Meshachachma, encouraging us, as always, to look again at the pasuk. Well, 
You've taken the lost object in. Now what? Someone comes to claim it. <coughs> On what basis will you give it back to them? Well, we know there are actually two ways, but the more famous among them is what's called simone. Simone means identifying factors. And as we can appreciate, there are different levels, and the Gemara itself discusses this, there are different levels of just how convincing an identifying factor can be. After all, if there's only five colors, let's say working colors, and he mentions one of them, that's not nearly as convincing as if he knows the serial number on, on the banknote. And so these are different levels of, um, of, of precision in terms of that. But either way, this is the classic, and there's many, many discussions, what, what makes for, for Simonim, and uh, what if he can't identify the item, but he can tell you where he left it, uh, or something that was nearby it, and, and, and so on and so forth. Many, many fascinating details, in fact. But what is the source for the idea that Simonim will help? After all, it's not proof positive. So the Balaturim has an amazing comment that the source for the drosha, for those who say that Simonim is really based on an actual drosha in the Torah, look again at the Pasuk. It says, you take the item in, <coughs> and it will be with you, Ad derosh achicha oso, until your brother comes and expounds well. Oso. What does oso mean? It means it. it, it it's just et, it, right? Oso. It says the Balaturim, for sure, as far as Pshat is concerned. But if you want to know where the drash comes from, it's looking you right in the face. Your brother comes and claims it. With what does he claim it? Oso. With its os. With its sign. He gives a simon. Os is a simon. And the Torah Tamima quotes his Palaturim, and he says he's, he's uh, surprised that the Palaturim said this and didn't mention that the Zohar Kodosh has also said this, I believe in Pasha Sukkas, literally says this, that, uh, that uh, Oso means Os Shelo. He provides its distinguishing features. It's a fascinating drasha because it's really, it's a homonym, as if to say the, the two words are not connected. Oso just means him, and os is, is a sign, but it is the same word. I mean, it sounds exactly the same, and that is the basis of the drash, which is very interesting. But the other avenue, just to, just to mention briefly, to, to give ourselves a bit of insight into the, the dynamics of Ashava Saveta, the other avenue through which you would return the object is Adim. I mean, the person comes and says, that's mine. So that's not enough, because that's not hard to say. That's not a basis for returning anything. I mean, how, how do you know? How do you know? There is actually the one exception, and this is the famous sukya of the, what's called the Tzurva Mirabanan, the young, the, the Torah scholar, who is known that he never, ever lies. And that then begets the sukya of when Tamidi Chachamim are allowed to lie. It's considered m- modest and appropriate the famous three things, uh, for example, if someone asks him if he knows the Masechta, he's allowed to say that he doesn't. I mean, not if they're asking halacha lemaisa, but just they're schmoozing with him and say, do you know that Masechta? It's acceptable for him to say that he doesn't. And, and interestingly, by the way, as Rebbe Chaim Kanievsky 
Zechot Tzadik Lavracha pointed out, this isn't necessarily considered to be lying. For the simple reason that if it's known that it's the way of Tamidah Chachamim, that if you ask them if they know Masechta, they'll say no. So no is just another way of saying yes. Uh, it's, it's really just, a, it's, 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 it's not misleading in any way because that's, that's the modest way. Either way, those are exceptions. But, but, uh, if, if, uh, but if it's known that aside from those things, he never will, always scrupulous, the honest will never, so he would actually be believed just to say, I recognize that and that's mine. But that's an exceptional bracket. For most people, they need a little bit more. Simonim, for example, identifying marks, or Adim, good old-fashioned witnesses. Someone else comes to, to vouch for him, as if to say, yes, that's his. person always isn't immediately believed about themselves, but someone else... That's testimony. Okay. Those are the two avenues. Simonim, identifying marks, and Edim. How many Edim do you need? Says the Ran in Maseches Chulin. One is enough. One is enough. And this is the cause of some uh, surprise amongst Mephorshim. Because, as we know, there's a well-known benchmark halakha with regards to matters of money, that you always need to aid him. One aid is not enough. You don't, you don't uh, give up money just uh, on the basis of one aid. It's last week's parsha. You need two. So why is one enough? So the simple answer might be that here, the one who found the object is not claiming that it's his. It could be that when we say you need two witnesses, that's to extract from the holder. Holder's rights. Hamotzi mechavero olav haraya. That a person who claims that something is his has the right to hold on to it until you prove otherwise. And that might need to aid him. Here, the one holding on to it is not claiming to be its owner. He's looking for its owner. So you're not really extracting from the, from the, from the possessor, from the claiming possessor. Maybe one aid is enough. But Rebitzel Blazer, Rebitzel Petterberger, who is much more well known for his, his Musser works, he was one of the primary Talmidim of Rebitzel Salanter, um, but he was also a Rav Posek, he was a Rav in St. Petersburg, and he has Shailos uh, Hachuvers pre Yitzchak, which are out of this world. And in very briefly, he explains the reason why you only need one witness, even though normally to make someone pay up money, you need two, but here one is sufficient. Because the whole setup here is not the way it is in any other case of money. In every case of money, all eyes are on the money. Namely, there's a certain amount or entity or whatever or debt. Who does it belong to? Or to whom does it accrue? All eyes are on. Does it belong to him? Does it belong to him? When it comes to Ashavas Aveda, and you want to know if you should give the, the, this object back to the person who's claiming it, what is your question? What is your guiding question? Is your guiding question, to whom does this object belong? No. That's a Bezdin question. You're not a Bezdin. You're a good citizen, good for you, you picked it up, you took it in, you announced it, you did all the things you're meant to do, but you're not a Bezdin. Your job is not to find out to whom the item belongs. So what is your job? 
Rashi quotes it, citing the Gemara in Pasuk Beis, Ad Deroshachicha. Keep it until Deroshachicha. You know what Deroshachicha means, or what one of its meanings by now? Deroshachicha. Darshehu Shelo Yehiramai. You, as an upstanding citizen, are expected to do what an upstanding citizen should do. But no more. You're not the judiciary. You're just a private person. So what are you meant to do? You want to give it back to, 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 to the rightful owner. And you're entitled to do that. Someone comes to claim it. What is your due diligence here? It's one thing. See if he's a Ramai. Is there something suspicious about him? You'll never know if he is the actual owner. You'll never know if the object was his. And by the way, even if he provides distinguishing marks, you still don't know that it's his. Maybe he had other occasion to see it. So you never know, and your job is not to know that the object is his. It's just one thing. Have you done the right thing by not giving it back to someone who's suspicious? And again, in Rashi's words, Derosh Achicha, your focus is not the object asking to whom does it belong. Your focus is the person coming to claim it. Does he seem suspicious? And if he doesn't, you're entitled to give it back to him if, if it's reasonable what he's saying. And, and, and how can he do that? Well, if he provides them on him, it's reasonable. And if he has one witness with him, it's reasonable. One witness is not enough to establish the ownership of a certain entity. But it's enough as, a, as a, what we would call a character witness. It's enough as, as a, uh, as a, sub, to support his claim that it seems reasonable. Another person, who, 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 completely separate individual, is corroborating what he's saying. As far as your drasha of achicha, you're in the clear. So this is really, again, it's, it's deceptively simple, but it's such a profound... And all he did, from a certain point of view, is, is, is to read the Rashi. We just, again, we gloss over the Rashi and we, we perhaps uh, habitually turn it, try and turn it into something else. But Rashi's words are, Darshehu. The focus is on the person who's coming. Whether, you, whether he sounds like it's, it's honest his, in his claim. So these are some of the uh, themes that relate to Ashava Saveda, which again is a very, very special mitzvah. And with this in mind, we move on to Pasuk Yud. And this is a Pasuk that we have never discussed before. And as we will see, quite a bit to say. What does it say? Lo tachrosh b'shor of yachtav. The mitzvahs come in thick and fast. In the Parshas Kiseitse, there's every, every Pasuk is one mitzvah, sometimes more. Do not plow with an ox and a donkey together. Okay. Rashi adds the same is true for any two species of animals. Okay. In other words, shor v'chamor is given almost as, a, as an example. But any two species of animals, they should not be put together to plow. And that's it. And dare we ask the question... Why not? Or at least investigate the question of why not? Tameha mitzvahs. Is there any way to understand why you shouldn't do this? And interestingly, here there's room to say, well, maybe there isn't. For the simple reason that this Pasuk Yud is actually preceded by and followed by two very similar mitzvahs of 
mixtures, things that shouldn't be mixed together. The pasuk before it is kilayim. Pasuk tes, lo kilayim, forbidden mixtures in planting. What's the pasuk after it? Lo silbash shatnes, not to wear shatnes, semo fishim yachta, wool and linen. And in the middle is the ox and the donkey. So contextually, there's a lot of room to say that, that this is the animal iteration or ex, 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 explication of the concept of, of kilayim, of shatnes, which means that if you want to find out what's behind it, you need to broaden your perspective and consider all of these cases because this is an application of that type of mitzvah of Kilayim. It could be. However, there are Rishonim who have offered each in their own way different explanations of this mitzvah, and each one is more fascinating than the next. And we begin with Ibn Ezra. And Ibn Ezra says, (coughs) the reason why, or advances a reason as to why the Torah would not let you plow with an with a ox and a donkey together is because, generally speaking, an ox is stronger and better at plowing than a donkey, which means it will be hard in this situation for the donkey to, to, to pull its weight or to keep up with the ox and, and, and to, to keep that pace, and that will be difficult. And that is tsar balechai. You put you put the a, a weaker animal together with this, and and it, it somehow is meant to keep up, but it's it's beyond its natural capacity. It's, it's, it will be a cause of of physical uh, distress and perhaps worse for the animal. That's tsar balechai, and that's why the Torah said uh, not to do it. If we would uh, apply this or plug this into the halacha, <coughs> so Rashi's told us that any combination of species we would assume that all species have different strengths and different uh, rates or, or speeds or whatever. Could one envisage two species where they're for sure different species, but they're equivalent in terms of strength and power and uh, plowing ability, etc.? <coughs> well, that's, um, those maybe are, are exceptional cases. But this is the way that Ibn Ezra has explained. It's an issue of Tzab Alechaim to, <coughs> to, to put the weaker one together with the stronger one. The Sefer Achinuch, who, as we know, also uh, will provide reasons for mitzvos, has, uh, one could say, a, an even more basic issue here. <coughs> and that is, says Sefer Achinuch, in any venture, it is the nature of animals that they are comfortable when they are together with their own species. It's very interesting. I mean, Lahavda, we would say birds of a feather flock together and, and, and all that. They tend to, to, to stay with their own. That's where they're comfortable. That's where they're secure, etc. and so forth. If you take them and you start to, to put them in, in some, with some other species and now they have to work together, it's, it's distressing for them. It's very interesting. This is, it's more of a, just a, of an, of a surrounding thing, of an, of an atmospheric thing. Even before the plow has moved, the donkey is not comfortable with the ox. And maybe the ox is not comfortable with the donkey either. The ox would prefer another ox than the donkey, another donkey. That's animals prefer to, to stay with, with their own. It's very interesting. Especially as, and again, one, one always has to know how the reasons for mitzvahs land in the actual practicalities of the mitzvah. But according to this, 
any setting, even if it's not plowing or, or so on and so forth, any joint venture or joint uh, exercise or whatever uh, with animals of a different species, they should be equally uncomfortable. Unless one says that the, the work of the plowing exacerbates the latent discomfort of uh, not being with their species, that I don't know. So, so far we have the, the Ibn Ezra, <coughs> that it's about different, uh, different power levels, levels of strength, which is distressing for the weaker, and then we have the Sefer Chinuch that is distressing for any animal to be paired together with an animal that's not a species. And then along comes Tosfos. And Tosfos say, and others also, but Tosfos are famous for saying this from the Bali HaTosfos on the, on the Chumash. Incredible Chiddush. <coughs> the Torah says, and again, we'll start with what's in the Chumash, we'll start with what's in the, in the Pazur, the ox and the donkey. They can't be plowing together. Why not? Says the Tosfus, Tsar Balechaim. Why is it Tsar Balechaim? Why is it distressing for the, for the donkey? <coughs> because the donkey is an unkosher animal. The ox is a kosher animal. Kosher animals chew the cud. Chew the cud means they regurgitate and you'll often see them chewing and they haven't really eaten anything lately, but they're still chewing because they chew the cut. So, says the Tosfus, so this is distressing for the donkey because he's plowing alongside the ox and the ox is chewing away. And as far as the donkey is concerned, that means somehow there's been food around and the ox, ox has gotten all of it and he hasn't gotten any of it. It's distressing. Tsar Balechai. Unbelievable. That's why not with Shor and Bachamur. And, and it, it's probably in, in place to mention that with all of these explanations, and all of them, they're all from Rishonim, Kulam Mahuvim, Kulam Birurim, they're all they're part of the, of, of the discussion. I think we haven't really done justice to, 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 to the Sugya if we leave only caring about donkey's feelings. Meaning that if the Torah is so sensitive to the distress of the donkey who thinks that the ox got some food or it's not comfortable or whatever, well, there's plenty of other beings that we're in much more uh, constant contact with who also might feel distressed. They're called human beings. And uh, if somehow we fail to take the translation of the sensitivity of Shor Shor Bachamor into all the people around us, then something has indeed been lost in translation. But this is the explanation of the Tosos. It's all about Male Geira. And Meshachachma again <coughs> comes in and says that what's very interesting about this, this third explanation of Tosos, chewing the cud versus not chewing the cud, is that it fits in absolutely with the halachic position of the Rambam. Now, now what is the Rambam's halachic position? How does it differ from anyone else? Rashi told us that any two species can't be paired together. And that's the halacha. But Ram, Rambam says on a derisa level, it's the, the prohibition is specifically to pair a kosher species with a non-kosher species. Everything else is drabanon, so by the time we're done, everything is all two species. But on a pure Torah level, it's specifically what's represented by Ashur and Achamor, kosher versus non-kosher. And that's a very interesting 
specification, <coughs> says Meshach Chachma, it makes perfect sense according to the explanation of Tosos. Because according to Tosos, if the concern here is that you have a non cut-shearing animal together with a yes-cut-shearing animal and, and it, will be, it will be distressing, so then you have your parameters for the prohibition on a Torah level, kosher species which choose the cut, together with non-kosher species that doesn't. So it's an interesting um, alliance of the halachic position of Rambam, that it's kosher with non-kosher, chewing cud versus not chewing cud, essentially, together with the Baal Tosfus's explanation as to why it's a problem. Rambam and Mishnah Torah goes together very well with Baliatosis. There's just one problem, and that is that there's someone that the Rambam in the Mishnah Torah doesn't seem to go very well with their explanation, and that is the Rambam in the Moronavuchim. As we know, in the third section of the Moronavuchim, <coughs> the Rambam also provides reasons for, for the mitzvahs. And when it comes to the prohibition of Shor Vachamor, so Rambam says that the reason, or the reason he suggests for the prohibition of plowing with these two species of animals together is that one shouldn't come to uh, interbreed them, which is itself a Torah prohibition to interbreed animals between the species, which is very interesting, aside from anything else, because this in Rambam, uh, well, there's room to explore this more, but, but for this explanation, it emerges that this Torah prohibition is a protective measure against another Torah prohibition, which can happen. It's rare. In other words, we normally associate the concept of a protective measure with the Rabbanon. The Torah gives you what's forbidden, and then it's in the uh, domain of the Rabbanon to add on protective measures against that. Every once in a while, we will encounter an, a, a situation where the Torah itself forbade something as a protective measure against something else. That's what it sounds like in terms of how the Rambam has described it. Don't plow them together, that they shouldn't cut, you shouldn't come to, <coughs> they're in such close quarters with each other, they're with each other the whole time, and then you, it may uh, uh, enter your head to, uh, to breed them as a protective measure, don't, don't plow with them together. Be that as it may, <coughs> says the Meshachachma, this explanation of the Rambam in the Moronavuchim does not seem to uh, check out with his halachic position that the Torah specifically forbade kosher species with non-kosher species. Because in terms of the prohibition against breeding them, there is absolutely no difference halakhically between whether you breed two species that are both kosher, both non-kosher, or one of each. It's exactly the same. And if, therefore, the primary issue here, the primary concern is one of interbreeding, so then why would the Torah specifically be prohibiting kosher species with non-kosher species, especially as, says Mishach Hochme, quotes <coughs> sources for this, a person interbreeds animals in order to produce some type of hybrid. But kosher species and non-kosher species, the child is, there's no viable uh, offspring that comes out from that. It will only come from interbreeding, which you're not allowed to do. Either both species are kosher or both are non-kosher. But if one is kosher and one's non-kosher, nothing will come of that. So this is actually the least likely scenario that a person would come to interbreed. There's literally nothing, nothing uh, in it for them. And, and this remains a question mark of the uh, Meshachachma on the Rambam. It's a very interesting, it's an ironic situation 
that the, the reason that, would, that works out best for Rambam's halachic position is not his own. It's the tosus about the chewing the cud, and then this kosher with non-kosher. The Rambam's own position actually would then, and it's an interesting example of the, of the uh, disparity to a certain degree of how the Rambam is paskening the halacha in Mishnah Torah and how he's explaining things in the Mornavuchim. Ultimately, as the Meshachach himself says, famously in Parshish Yisro, it's the same hand that wrote both of them, but it needs to be reconciled. We'll just may, maybe mention with a... <coughs> Alderech haremes, the pasuk says, "Lo tachrosh b'shor uvachamor." Don't plow. Don't plow with an ox. Don't plow with a donkey. There is a sefer called Sifse Kohen Al Hatorah, Shach Al Hatorah. It is not to be confused with the Shach from the from the Yeridei and Chosha Mishpat, Reb Shem Kohen. Rather, it's from Rav Mordechai Kohen, one of the Talmidim of the Arizal. I don't know if he was a direct Talmid, but he's from that base of Medrash. It's a very special sefer, Sifse Kohen Al Hatorah. And I'm paraphrasing what he said because it can be explained in a number of ways. But the Shach the says, Rav Mordechai Cohen says, that you know, when it comes to Mashiach, people are often very interested in many of the details. What will, it, what will, what will happen and what will it be like? And, and they get very involved in this. And, and sometimes this becomes like a, a primary focus. And when's he coming? And it becomes the whole... Or, in the meanwhile, they actually have their Judaism to, to perform, which will bring the Mashiach. And sometimes that, that can perhaps be moved away from the center if the center focus becomes Mashiach himself. With all the details that one can't really know and there isn't really much uh, uh, benefit in trying to work out. And this is what the Rambam says. In, in the end of the Mishnah Torah, he, gives two, he has two brief chapters on Yemosa Mashiach, and he concludes by saying, there's nothing more to say. I can't tell you anything else. I can't tell you when he's coming, and I don't think it's worth trying to find out, because it doesn't lead you not to further your Avas Hashem, and not your Yiras Hashem, and doesn't make you into a better Jew. And that's what you're meant to be doing now, is to be bringing the Mashiach, not just to be trying to figure out exactly uh, all of the details or whatever. So, says the Shach, there's two Mashiachs. We have a tradition, certainly in the Kabbalah, there's a tradition of the second Mashiach, meaning there's Mashiach ben David and Mashiach ben Yosef. Mashiach ben David is the donkey. As we know, Mashiach comes riding on the donkey. And Mashiach ben Yosef is the ox, is the shore. Bechor shoro. And here the Pasuk says, you know, you should be aware of them and you should anticipate their arrival and you should try and hasten their arrival. But lo tachrosh b'shor v'chamor. Don't spend the whole time plowing up and trying to find out when's the shore coming and when's the chamor coming because that's not the best use of your time or assets and it's a very, very thought-provoking especially our, our, our uh, and it's a delicate thing our eyes should be turned to the future but with a view to ushering in the future and not just uh, uh, the, 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 the interesting nature of what we think will happen then at the expense of what should be happening right now to bring then into, into existence and, and Mitz Hashem, lesson we should take to heart and we should find out all the details, we should make it happen and, and Mitz Hashem uh, uh, all will be resolved at the time. Amen.